Good morning. Glad you've chosen to worship with us here at Prairie View. We are glad you're here. And first things first, before I get started, I want to thank Joshua last week for preaching for me. Uh, As he mentioned, every six weeks or so, I take a week off. It gives me a chance to get refreshed, get recharged, avoid getting burnt out, that type of thing. And so I'm very thankful to him. He did a great job with it last week. And then also we're thankful to Scott Klein uh, for leading worship here. Even though he's not here to hear this thank you, uh, we do want to say thank you to him. He did a really great job leading worship while Jeff was gone. But Jeff and his family are back safely, and we are glad to have them back. And personally, I'm glad to be preaching again, and I'm glad Jeff is here leading worship again. So uh, all is right in the world. So uh, with that, I'll be honest, there was something that Joshua said in his sermon last week that made me a little bit self-conscious. And what that was was during the beginning of his sermon, jokingly, he said that it seems as though every time I ask him to preach, he gets the hard texts. And that made me a little bit self-conscious because I thought about it and I realized, okay, he might kind of have a point there. It kind of does, it kind of does seem to happen that way. It's not intentional. It's not like I'm trying to pawn the hard stuff off on on Josh, but I can see how he might get that impression. But on the bright side, I then looked ahead to this week and realized that I had it coming for me, too. And that's where we're at in Mark chapter 10. And you may notice that this sermon is called Hard Sayings Part 2. If you were here probably about five or six weeks ago, we went through some parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And that was Hard Sayings Part 1. And the reason why we called that sermon Hard Sayings was because some of Jesus' teachings at times were just hard to understand. They were just hard to follow. If you had been in his original audience and you didn't have scripture to kind of explain things to you, you might be confused. You might have no clue what it was that Jesus was trying to say. So that's why we called that sermon hard sayings was because sometimes Jesus's teachings are just hard to understand. They can be hard to follow. But today's sermon is called hard sayings, not because what we're going to read is necessarily hard to follow, but because what we're going to read is sometimes hard to hear. It's sometimes hard to hear. So with that, if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Mark chapter 10. We're going to read quite a bit of scripture today. So if you're going to follow along in your Bibles, get your finger ready to move along the page. If you're going to follow along on the screen, get your eyes ready to pay attention. And I'm going to start reading in verse 1 of Mark chapter 10. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom... He taught them and Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So if you've been in the gospel of Mark with us so far, you've noticed that this is a trend. This is a trend of the Pharisees coming to Jesus and trying to make him slip up. They're trying to get him to say something wrong, trying to get him in trouble, trying to find some way to level accusations against Jesus. And so far, this is the best plan they've had up to this point, because this is a tough question for Jesus to answer. Because no matter how he answers this, someone is going to be offended. Someone is going to be offended. Because if you go against Moses then all of your Jewish people are going to be offended because Moses is the guy who got the law from the Lord. 
And so if you go against Moses, you better watch where you're stepping. But then if you go with Moses, what about the Gentile people who are listening? They had much more lax laws when it came to divorce. Are they going to think that you're a fundamentalist or too strict? So either way, Jesus seems to be in a tough position. And one little wrench to throw in the middle of this is, does anyone remember what happened to the last Jewish teacher to speak publicly about divorce in the Gospel of Mark? John the Baptist. And his head ended up on a platter. So Jesus might be facing his toughest challenge yet when it comes to a question from the Pharisees. And so when he responds, he says, hey, what did Moses command you? He answers their question with a question of his own. And the teaching of Moses on divorce, the standard teaching on this, would have been Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read those to you. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, if she goes and becomes another man's wife... And the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." Pretty simple passage, right? Not really. Not really. It's a pretty difficult passage. And so this is the passage that the Pharisees would have gone off of. Anytime divorce comes up, this is the go-to text for the Pharisees. But even then, as confusing as a passage as this is, there is no set interpretation of this passage. Hillel was a Pharisee who tended to lean a little bit more on the liberal side And Hillel said that if you read this text, the right way to interpret this text is that if a woman burns her husband's toast, then that is merit to find indecency in her and to write her a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Shammai, he was a Pharisee on the other end of the coin, and he would have said, no, finding indecency in her was clearly just in the case of unchastity. That was the only way that divorce could have been okay. That's the only way Moses could have endorsed divorce. And then you had a rabbi named Ichabod, and Ichabod was just kind of a weirdo. And Ichabod said that even if a man just found a woman who he thought was prettier, then that was merit for divorce. That's how Ichabod interpreted the law. And so there are all these different interpretations out there. And so Jesus does have some wiggle room, but he's still kind of in a rock and a hard place. And so look at his response in verse 5. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So the Pharisees are thinking that, okay, he's either have to, he either has to go with Moses or go against Moses. There's no middle ground. And Jesus kind of does take a middle ground. His answer is, divorce is bad. That's his answer. 
That's pretty much what he says. It's a pretty general answer. And they're probably thinking, oh, great. We got him. We thought we had him in a trap, and he found a way to wiggle his way out of it again. And you notice when it comes to the law, all this entire time this is happening, one thing that's interesting is that the law that Moses wrote, that God gave to Moses, said that the man could divorce his wife. But it never said anything about the wife divorcing the man. So all the authority lies with the man in that position, in that interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. And in the Gentiles' case, anyone could divorce anyone for anybody. So there's all, for anything, there's all these different ideas going around. There's all these different interpretations. Not all the Jews can agree on it. Not all the Gentiles can agree on it. And what does Jesus do? He says, divorce is bad. That's pretty much his answer. But is it really that simple? Is there more that Scripture has to say about divorce? Because truth is, this is a delicate, delicate, and sensitive issue. And I do not pretend to know what it's like to go through a divorce. I have family members who have been through it, but I haven't been through it. So I can't sit here and say that I know exactly what it's like. But this is one of those things in Scripture that you can't just skip over. You can't just skip over it. You have to look at things like this and look at them and truly see what Scripture has to say. You can't just sidestep them because they're hard to hear or because they're hard sayings or because they're hard to preach from. That's the truth of it. So what do we see in Jesus' response? We see several different things in Jesus' response. Number one, we see that Jesus acknowledges that this was not the ideal. This was not the ideal. And he cites Genesis. He cites Adam and Eve. And he says that when you look at Adam and Eve, you see that man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife. He he cites Genesis, and that's a big deal. Because by citing Genesis, Jesus is saying that, guys, you know what? This is not how marriage was intended to be. This is not how marriage was intended to be. Divorce was not part of the original formula. But when sin enters the world... Good things created by God can be tainted and can be thrown away by sinful people like you and me. And so Jesus is saying that this was never the ideal. Another thing that Jesus says is that this is never what Moses intended. So even when it comes to the law, this is not what Moses had in mind. But this was there because of hardness of heart. That's the reason this is there. The overarching point being that this is never the ideal. So the question then comes up, naturally, well, what else does Scripture say about divorce? Are there times when Scripture permits divorce? And the answer is, yes, there are. Typically, most scholars, most interpreters will look at Scripture, and they will say that there are two scenarios where divorce is permissible, according to Scripture. Number one is adultery. Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, Matthew records this same conversation, but records it with a little bit more detail of what Jesus said. And so Matthew acknowledges that Jesus says that adultery may be a time when divorce is permissible. That's option number one. Option number two is desertion. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, acknowledges that if you have an unbelieving spouse and a believing spouse— and the unbelieving spouse leaves the believing spouse, then the believing spouse is no longer bound 
is no longer under bondage by that divorce, which seems to imply that that believing spouse who did not initiate this, who did not want this to happen, seems to not be held accountable for it. It won't be held against them. Now, those are the two clear cases where divorce may be permissible in Scripture. But here's the thing. You know how the world works. There are so many more things that happen in divorce scenarios, in marriages. What if you've got a woman who is being mercilessly beaten by her husband? What if you've got a marriage where a husband or a wife is putting their children in danger? What if there's drugs involved? What if there's illegal activity involved? What if there is physical, emotional abuse? All these things scripture really doesn't speak to. So what do you do in that scenario? What do you do if it's not a case of adultery? It's not a case of desertion. Scripture's silent on it. What are your options? Well, truthfully, the situation there is pray like you have never prayed before. Seek the advice of Christian counselors, professional people who can guide you in that. Seek the advice of church leaders who can pray with you, who can talk to you, who can try and figure things out with you. That's the only option there because it isn't always as clear cut as we like to make it. So all we can do is throw ourselves at God's grace and make the best decision we possibly can. There are times when scripture does not speak to those scenarios. So what do you do? You pray, you seek counsel, you pray some more, you seek some more counsel, and you throw yourself on God's grace. So then what after that? Well, another point that Jesus makes is that even in the cases of desertion or of adultery, divorce is never the ideal. It comes back to that Jesus' idea that divorce is never the ideal. Let's say you've got a situation of adultery. It's clear-cut, it's public, everyone knows it, no doubt about it, caught red-handed. Divorce is still not the ideal, even in that scenario. What about desertion? Same exact thing. Divorce is still not the ideal in that scenario. It never will be the ideal. It is always the last resort. It is never a good thing. Because it's never what God intended originally for marriage. And then finally, point number five that I kind of want to hit on, and this is an important one. I want you to know that if you have been through a divorce, if you're going through a divorce right now, or if down the road you find yourself going through a divorce, you are not forever lost. You are not losing your salvation. You are not forever unable to be used by God ever again. You are not forever defiled. We throw ourselves on God's grace. That's what we do every single day as followers of Christ. And if you're going through that, your life is not over. God can still use you. You are still valued in the eyes of God. You are still loved in the eyes of God. More than anyone else ever could love you. And some churches out there like to take people who have been through this and make them feel as though they are second-class citizens. And they're not. They have their baggage just like we do. Just like you do, just like I do. That's the truth of it. I pray that 
as you hear this, as this is a hard thing to hear and this is a hard thing to preach, I pray that you will not let a 15-minute half-sermon make you feel as though you have Prairie View cornered on how we view divorce. Jesus does say some pretty important things here. But at the same time, if you're going through that, talk to one of our elders. Talk to me. Talk to Jeff. It is not always clear-cut, and we realize that. These are not simple situations. There are so many factors that come into problems with marriage and problems with divorce. So don't feel like if you've been through this or if you're going through this, don't feel like you're not welcome here because you are. And God can still use you here. And you are not any worse off than any others of us. Because ultimately we are all beggars in the eyes of God. That's where we're at. And no matter what it is that we're going through, no matter what it is that we've been through or what we will go through in the future, we throw ourselves on God's mercy. It's that simple. Are there things that Jesus says about divorce? Absolutely. But at the same time, we trust in grace. And these are not issues where we can forever no longer be used by God, where we are forever defiled. We take Jesus' teachings, and we honor Jesus' teachings, and we strive to live the lives that God would have us live. But at the same time, We trust in forgiveness and we trust in mercy. And ultimately, that's what it all comes back to for us, no matter what baggage it is that we have. So moving on in our passage, once again, I do want to stress that as sensitive as a topic as this is, do not feel like you have heard a 15-minute portion of a sermon and then instantly leave because you feel as though you've been judged or you feel as though you've been looked down upon. We want to talk to you about this. If you have questions that haven't been covered about this, we want to talk to you about it. Don't just leave here and automatically assume that you've got us pegged as a judgmental and arrogant and self-righteous church. Because it is not what we intend to be at all. And we would love to talk to you about this. But moving on, I do have to move on in our passage. I'm going to pick up in verse 17. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So this guy runs up to Jesus, and what you can tell is that he doesn't seem to be like the Pharisees. He runs up to Jesus, and he's not asking him a question to trap him. He's not asking him a question to get him in trouble. He's asking him a question to genuinely seek Jesus' guidance here. He kneels before him, and he says, Jesus, I want to inherit eternal life. Great question, don't we all? And so Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And look at his response as he continues in verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And some of us may be sitting out there and thinking, yeah, right. You're telling me this guy really kept the law ever since he was a little kid. He never slipped up once. Yeah, right. No way. But just for the sake of conversation, let's give this guy the benefit of the doubt. And let's say that he really has obeyed these laws ever since he was a youth. From day one, he has obeyed these laws. What is Jesus going to say then? Jesus, looking at him, loved him 
and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. So you see Jesus looks at this guy and he loves him. He's not trying to make an example of this guy. He's not trying to publicly shame him by what comes next. But he is being honest with the guy. And he hits on the guy's one weakness. And that one weakness is his wealth. That's the one thing that he cares more about than God. And Jesus says, give it up. You think, you think eternal life is so great, is it better than your wealth? Are you willing to give that up for it? Realistically, I think if we're honest with ourselves, do we have that one thing in our lives that matters to us just a little tiny bit more than God? It could be anything. It could be your family. It could be your friends. It could be success. It could be titles, glory, power. It can be anything and everything. And you love it so much that you'll give up a lot of other stuff. I'll give up 10% of my money. I'll give up a couple hours on Sunday morning. I'll give up a couple hours on Wednesday night. I'll even come clean the toilets from time to time. But God, don't get near that one thing. Don't get near it. What if that's the one thing that we're called to give up? How do you respond to that? That's between you and God. How does this guy respond to it? He says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The price was too high for this guy. Eternal life sounds nice, but wealth, I got wealth right now. Why would I give that up? And so he leaves. And Jesus goes further in verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples cannot believe what Jesus is saying, so much so that he has to repeat himself. And he has to use imagery to help them get the point across, because it's going in one ear and out the other. Nothing new with the disciples. But he uses imagery of a needle and a camel. And some commentators have taken this passage and have tried to argue that the eye of a needle is really a gate in the wall in Jerusalem. And it's small. But Jesus is not talking about a needle that you sew with. He's talking about this small gate. In other words, it's hard to get through it. Uh, you kind of have to remaneuver things with your camel, but then you can eventually get the camel through the gate. There's no evidence for that whatsoever in Scripture or in anything else. So what do you do with that? What is Jesus saying? He's saying that getting into the kingdom of God for a rich person is like a camel going through the eye of a needle. In other words, it's impossible. That's what Jesus is saying. We try to water it down. We try to change things. We try to find ways to make it a little bit easier on our ears, but that simply is not what Jesus is saying. And you might be exceedingly astonished that I would say that. 
But it's okay because so were the disciples. Verse 26. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? Many of these disciples may be thinking that, you know what? If you have wealth, that shows that you're blessed by God more than anybody else. How is it that you can say those people aren't saved? But then look at Jesus' response. And before you stone me, this is the key to the entire passage. Jesus' response in verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. So what's Jesus saying? He's not saying that it's hard for a rich person on their own to get into the kingdom. He's saying it's impossible for a rich person to get into the kingdom on their own. But when you really think about it, it's impossible for a poor person to get into the kingdom on their own. It's impossible for a white person, a black person, a gay person, a straight person, a Republican, a Democrat. That's the truth here. So before you think, now, wait a minute, that seems a little bit crazy of an interpretation. It doesn't just apply to the rich people. It applies to everybody. It is impossible for us to enter the kingdom of God on our own. But the good news is that what's impossible with man is possible with God. That's the message here. Look at Peter's response, verse 28. Peter continues his trend of having foot and mouth disease. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus says, huh, that stinks for the rich people. Good thing I left everything. (laughs) See you guys later. Enjoy, uh, yeah, whatever you're going to. And look at Jesus' response. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So Jesus does not seem to totally dismiss Peter's claim. He seems to say, you know what, Peter, that does say something about you. You have given up an awful lot to follow me. And that's not to be completely ignored. That does tell you a little bit of where you are and your willingness to follow me. But, you know, I wonder if Peter could look ahead and hear verses 32 through 34. And if he really understood that. If he's really going to understand what Jesus says in verses 32 through 34 about his death, about what's awaiting him in Jerusalem, would Peter be quite so eager to say, yep, I left everything to follow him. I'm right there. I put all my stock in this guy. Peter's willing to say that right now, but would he be willing to say that when Jesus is dying on a cross? The answer is no. But we'll go into detail about that a little bit later. Look at verse 35, the last passage I want to cover in this sermon today. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? Mardana caught that. If your child walks up to you and says, Hey, Mom, Dad, I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to say yes to it. Chances are you'd probably say, Okay, hold on a little bit. That depends on what your question is. 
That's exactly what Jesus does. He says, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. James and John, they're looking out for number one. They're thinking, you know what? We are getting close to when things are really going to go down. We're getting close to the climax of all this stuff. We need to make sure that we're going to be in positions of power when this is all said and done. We need to make sure that we put our name in the hat to be Jesus' right and left-hand men when he gets the throne and when he's in charge. Well, what does Jesus say? You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Guys, do you have any clue what you're asking? Do you have any clue what it would mean for you to be my right and left hand men when I'm hanging on a cross? Because I'm not going to get a throne of some kingdom here on earth. I'm going to get a cross. Are you really wanting to be my right and left hand men if you understand that? Look at their response. Huh, we're able. Clearly they still don't get it. Jesus says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So James and John say, yeah, Jesus, we're, you know, we can do it. We're ready. We're able. Just give us the job. Give us the title and we're in. We're good. And Jesus says, okay, you know what, guys? You will experience what I'm going to experience. And if you look in history, James is one of the first martyrs of the early church in Acts chapter 12. He would experience suffering. He would experience death. And John, he may have lived a long time, but it wasn't an easy life. It was a hard life that he lived, suffering for the sake of the gospel every day for the rest of his life. They would experience suffering. They would drink the cup of suffering. They didn't realize it at the time, but they got what they asked for. Look at verse 41. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. They're saying, guys, we've been a team all along. And now all of a sudden, the closer we get to Jerusalem, all you care about is your title and your glory and making sure that your family has a name in this new kingdom that God is going to establish. What happened to the rest of us? What happened to the team mentality? There's no I in team. Well, their response shows that the other ten are just as misled as James and John are. Because the same way James and John are seeking glory and seeking power and seeking authority, the ten get mad when they think that there's a chance that they might not get it. When they think there's a chance that James and John might have more than them. All these guys clearly, as we've seen throughout the entire gospel, they just don't seem to get it. And they won't get it until the cross because only when they see things through the lens of the cross can they understand anything that Jesus said. Anything about the kingdom. The lens of the cross is what makes things clear. Until then, they're seeing with blurry vision. But when the cross comes in, everything is brought into focus. Verse 42, Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles... Lord it over them, 
and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus' point is that, guys, you know what? If you want titles and authority and power and impressive positions, following me is not for you. Because that is not what I have in mind. I didn't come to have titles and position and glory and authority. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Are you willing to serve? Because, guys, that's what following me looks like. It's not about power and prestige. It's about getting on your hands and knees and washing people's feet. Are you really sure that this is still appealing to you when you consider that? Do you still want to be my right and left-hand men if you understand that my kingdom starts with a cross and it continues with selfless sacrifice day in and day out? Are you sure this is what you're ready for? Are you sure this is exactly what you had in mind? And you've got to give Jesus some credit here. He's giving these guys as many chances as possible to make 100% sure that they understand what they're getting themselves into. So what do all these passages have to do with one another? All three of these passages do tie together. You have the passage about divorce. You have the passage about the rich young ruler. And you have the passage about James and John trying to get prestige and power and authority. And the way all three of these come together is that being a disciple of Jesus changes the way you relate to people around you. It changes the way you relate to your spouse. It changes the way you relate to those who have less than you. And it changes the way you prioritize your wealth. And it changes the way that you relate to other people because you no longer seek to relate to other people so that you can have control over them or power over them or somehow milk them for all their worth for your benefit. It's about serving them. So putting yourself second and them first. And here's the thing. We don't do this to earn anything. We don't do this to prove ourselves to God. We do this because when we experience the grace that God offers us, we want to share that grace with every single person around us. When you understand the grace that God has shown you on the cross, how can you not be challenged to show grace to your spouse? When you experience the grace that God shows you on the cross, how can you not be challenged to show that same grace to those who have less than you? When you've experienced the grace that God shows you on the cross, how can you not be challenged to serve people, to show them grace, even though they don't deserve it? That's the question. We don't do this to earn anything. We don't do it to prove ourselves before God. We do it as a response to the mercy and the forgiveness and the grace that God offers us. I hope that every single one of us, all of us, We'll let the cross change the way we relate to those around us. As Joshua mentioned last week, the crossbar of the cross is often metaphorically seen to show that discipleship isn't just an up and down relationship between God and us. 
It's a horizontal relationship. And the relationship between us and God changes the way we relate to the people around us. That's the idea. Has the cross changed the way you relate to those around you? Because if you understand what it means, if you have experienced that grace that comes as a result of the cross, the challenge is to learn to show that grace to those around you. No forgiveness, no mercy, no grace is greater than the mercy and forgiveness and grace that God has shown us. By dying on a cross, by taking our sins upon him, are you willing to show that same grace to the people around you? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your grace. And God... Everything we do, every effort we make, every time we strive to be more like you, it's not to prove ourselves. It's not to gain better standing. It's not to elevate ourselves to somehow being worthy of a relationship with you. We can never do anything that makes us worthy of that. But God, we do strive to love you and to love people because we've experienced your grace, as a response to that grace. God, I pray that you will empower us and equip us to love the people around us that we have a hard time loving. The waitress who messes up our order, the telemarketer who calls during dinner time, that frustrating family member. I pray that your grace will change the way we relate to those around us, will change the way we treat our spouses, our friends, our family our brothers and sisters in Christ. God, give us new hearts. Transform us. And I pray that we can be agents of grace, the same grace that you showed us. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you'd like to talk to one of our elders, they'll be standing at the sides of the room at the end of the service. It's a great opportunity for you to Pray with them about something that may be going on in your life. It's a great opportunity to ask any questions about the church, ask questions about placing your faith in Christ. Your Your friendship mm, Intimate I find I'm moving To the rhythms of your grace Your fragrance is intoxicating in our secret place and your love